Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk, and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So you first. What is astonishing you? Well, you know, last week I had, I, I said I had three things. Really, I had four. Yeah. But I was keeping the fourth one in my back pocket because I think this one just deserves its own spotlight. And so what I'm astonished by is my friend, Kate, has been <laughs> asked... To preach at oh, our yeah. denomination's General Assembly. And that's a big deal. Right. So for those who do not know, every two years, our denomination, the PCUSA, the Presbyterian Church USA, has a national meeting, national gathering, in, w- in which we make decisions for the whole church across the country. And it's it's an international event. I mean, missionaries come in from all over the world and... Um, uh, Presbyterians from across the world come to this meeting uh, to have input in the decision-making, the discernment of the PCUSA. And every day of this week-long meeting, there's worship and someone is asked to preach. And usually, often, it is, you know, the former president of whatever university. <laughs> it's usually the... it's someone important. <laughs> <laughs> it's the pastor of First Presbyterian Big you know, big city with lots of members. And so it's it's astonishing that you've been asked to preach. Not astonishing because you're a great preacher, but it's astonishing because you do not run in the circles of those who are usually asked to preach. And so I think it says something about a shift in our denomination. And to your credit, One of the things that you do is that you often, and very authentically so, you show up in spaces saying what you believe to be true about um, the mission Jesus has given the church both locally and nationally. And that often runs counter to people with people who have a more corporate mindset who are just managing decline. And you're mm-hmm. like, no, the Great Commission is still on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jesus did not revoke mm-hmm. that. And so we must be about that business. And that message, I think, has broken through at least to some people. And so they've asked my friend to preach. And so I'm just like living in the in the in the 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 splash of of glory that is my friend Kate. No, it's really a great honor, and I'm I'm very happy that you were asked to preach the General Assembly because I know you very authentically and sincerely and, um, like, to your core, want to do this. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yes. I, I, it is, um, I can't pretend that I'm not really excited about it, um, part of it is just a standard ego thing like we've talked a lot about like I mean just ego is an occupational hazard of pastoring right I mean it just is because you are allowing the Lord to lead you into a space where I mean especially pastors who preach every week where you're saying let me tell you all what God (laughs) thinks right I mean this is just not you can't do that without um, a large ego. I, I don't think, um, because on the face of it, it's just so ridiculous. Um, so, so part of it is there's just an, there's just an ego element. Like, I just think it's cool and I can't lie about that. Um, but part of it is there are just times when I'm reading something that the national denomination has put out, or I'm just kind of reading the standard, line the party line the sort of representative of the culture the quote classic presbyterian culture or even the aspirational presbyterian culture and i just am like i just like i just want to react to it in a way like i mean you and i talk about the difference between being an introvert and an extrovert and you sit in a meeting and are like you know whatever i don't i have and I sit in sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes I just, someone says something and I just legitimately feel like I'm going to die if I cannot say what I think is true 
often in reaction to that. So, so I really um, believe that God doesn't throw people away like garbage. And I believe that God doesn't throw denominations away like garbage. And I think that like every part of the body of Christ, you know, the Presbyterian Church USA holds great gifts and great um, warped places, right? I mean, there's just places where I think that our understanding of who Jesus is and who we are called to do has just been warped and malformed by culture. And I think that it's easy to see those deformities um, and and think, oh, well, I'm going to strike out for holier people, holier land. And I just don't, I mean, God doesn't do that. I mean, God doesn't do that with individuals. <laughs> like when David did what he did to Bathsheba and to Uriah, God didn't say, I'm done with you. You know, I mean, and so I, I and, and scripture is just full of examples of that. And I don't think that God does that with people corporately, obviously not with the people of Israel. And I just think like, from what I know about God, like how astonishing and just humorous would it be if a great spiritual revival broke out within the Presbyterian church? I don't mean an institutional revival. Right. I mean, a spiritual revival, like how astonishing would it be if, and how would it just be so, but God, if a, if a great resistance to the powers and principalities that are passing away, but putting up a fight, if that resistant rose resistance rose up within the PCUSA of all, like you could not think of a more unlikely place for that. So I just think, you know, I, I, I think that, I mean, to the extent that people have an opinion about me, which why would they, but I think people think that I'm anti-Presbyterian and I'm not like, I'm not, I, I'm, I am anti um, withering on the vine, right? I'm anti-Presbyterian historical society. I am anti the spirit of like cultural elitism and, you know, I'm anti all of that, but I, I, I want the Presbyterian church to flourish and come alive in Christ. And I think it's been, there's been seasons of great flourishing in the past and there's nothing in the world that can stop us from flourishing with Jesus in the future if we choose to do it, right? If we choose to just go all in and say, whatever you want to um, prune, prune it. Um, and whatever you want to grow, grow it. And when we start to see some growth, prune it again so there can be even more, right? Like if what we want as a denomination is to please the Lord, if that's all that we want, then there's no way we can't do it. Um, and, and so I think that that will just be something holy and radically new. And, you know, I'm excited about it. And I think you and I are both have this really interesting um, experience because a lot of the things that are aspirational within our denomination are not accessible to us. Um, and in the beginning, that felt arbitrary and unfair and we deserve blah, blah, blah. And if things were fair and and now, you know, I think it's just such a huge gift that I, you know, am not running a race to get a prize that turns out to be poison. Mm. Um, so, so anyway, so I, I, I love the PCUSA and I also don't, you know, I think we talk about healthy detachment being so important in pastoring, right? So like, I don't, I mean, I have desires, but I'm not under any illusions that anybody owes me anything, including Jesus. And so, you know, it's not like I want to preach so that I can fill in the blank X, Y, Z. Well, I'm, I'm mindful of the reality that over the years, people have approached you with a kind of attitude that sort of pats you on the head and says, oh, isn't your little church cute? Right. Or they approach That's you. That's admirable. Yeah, it's admirable <laughs> that you would be at that little church, that little struggling church, and you know it's multi-ethnic, yes, but you know it's the, that little church. Or they approach you with an attitude that says, "Well, you could be 
at such and such church. You could be at another kind of church. You could be at a, a larger, more well-resourced, well-resourced church. And for me, the the joy in your being invited to preach um, at the General Assembly level is that your story and stories like ours might filter down to seminarians. Because I remember being in seminary and coming out of seminary, and there there was a definite drive to move up the to move up the ranks, right? Right, like the 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 myth of the American meritocracy has so infiltrated mm-hmm. the Church of Jesus Christ, and especially, I mean, we know our own home, so especially in the PCUSA, and so there's this this idea that if you're good, you'll start off at this place, and then if you work hard, you'll get to that place, and that place, and that place, and and even though I mean, again, one of our strengths, I think, in the, in this particular brand, part of the body of Christ is, you know, the biblical scholarship is strong and people know the word. And so you know that that kind of ideology is completely contrary to scripture. You know it. And yet somehow culturally, it's still, you know, it, it, it still is so, so strong. It's just such a strong pull. And it's um, and so I think it's really important. I mean, I thought all along, you know, our, our denomination has started a practice of doing um, what do they call it? Like people graduate from seminary, and you'll do a oh a pastoral residency, right? Yes. So mm-hmm. so certain candidates, promising candidates, will get invited to do pastoral residencies in certain churches. So for a year or two, you are you are. Um, you're serving in this church. And the idea is, gosh, people aren't prepared for ministry when they leave seminary. True that. Um, So let's send them to a really successful congregation so that they will be have that extra round of preparation, which I'm not opposed to. But when the churches that do that work are the richest, whitest, most corporate churches, what it does is reinforce the dynamic of this is what success looks like. And I do mean success, not faithfulness. This is what successful ministry looks like. Mm -hmm. And then we teach people that those are the only kinds of churches that are valuable. valuable. And we teach people that what you want to do is quote, is get to a quote, good church. Mm -hmm. And, and that's what a quote, good church is. And that that's really deadly. And so then when people are laboring, serving other churches that are not, quote, good, I mean, it just skews everything and excuse people's ability to understand the presence and power and gifting in their congregations. And and so I think um, it would be really wonderful if in our denomination we could redefine, we could First of all, ditch the word successful and use the word faithful. Mm-hmm. And then if we could redefine what a faithful church looks like, if we could redefine what a beautiful church looks like, if we could redefine what um, a vital church looks like, um, because then we would find, and this is unsurprisingly when you look at it through the lens of the gospel, that some of the, <laughs> I'm thinking of Jesus calling some of the par- Pharisees, whitened sepulchers whitewashed tombs right to say like you look beautiful from the outside and on the inside you're dead churches of all sizes and all places fit that description and then there are some congregations that look dead on the outside that really are being reborn and i think we know that story so well because we because of the faithfulness of god have been led to live it with people so often and um and and there's there's no there's no more life-giving place to be and so and what if our presbyteries and those large wealthy congregations begin to value those places that look dead and say oh what they need is good leadership what they need or some resources what they need we can help them with, and instead of this idea of well, let's let's find the good pastors and get them into the already well-established, thriving congregations. Well, and also I think there's this mystique of pastors, which is really unhelpful. Like this idea that like if churches have a good pastor, then a quote mm-hmm. quote good pastor, whatever that is, then the church will 
you know, transform in some kind of way. And the reality is, and this is, I mean, deeply ironic that we have to say this because it's the heart of Presbyterian polity, and not to mention the gospel, pastors are are not... They're not the church. And they're not God. And they're not the sole determinant, you know, that that the 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 determinate factor of the faithfulness of the church are the members of the body of Christ in that place, right? I mean, that, so, I mean, it just, I think, also frame, like, reveals the way our, the, our, sort of the world culture idea of, like, a business is as successful as its CEO, right? Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, I think even people who are studying culture, organizational culture, would, would call out that lie, right? Like, that good, quote, good CEOs create good culture where every single person who's a part of the organization sees the mission and believes in it and is thriving for it, right? Like, so it's ironic that that kind of conversation is happening in secular for-profit organizations and not in churches, right? Which is just crazy to me, but it's not. I mean, the, the dialogue so frequently continues to wrap around, do you have a good pastor or do you have a bad pastor? And I'll just say, like, it's not like I'm saying all the churches that look dead are really thriving and we just don't have eyes to see sure. it. A lot of churches that look dead are dead, right? <laughs> I mean, they just are. And I think, like, for me, one of the great moments of uh, hum humble um, spiritual truth butt-kicking that came to me was sort of early in my journey here. But, you know, when we were in the process of transformation, um, and the church was small and we were struggling to do some things, but it just, you know, it, I mean, it occurred to me one morning in a way that I think came from the Holy Spirit. It was like, y'all are not small because you're so much holier than everyone else, right? <laughs> like, it's not that you all are small because you are living according to a standard that's just you're too just much. So you're thankful. just so, you know, like you're asking people to do things that they're unwilling to do. You're not small because you're so faithful. Now, so, that might be the case for some churches, and I'm not even dissing people in this. I mean, like, it's not, it's just to recognize that I think a lot of because a lot of small churches will look at big churches and go like, well, of course you're big because you got all that money. Or of course you're big because you sold out. Yeah. I mean, you can sell out at any level, <laughs> at any number, right? So when we talk about this a lot, like people want to throw darts at elevation in Charlotte all the time. And, you know, they're not my servant. So I don't, it's just none of my business really. But, I, you know, there are certainly things that they do and core values in their community that I don't share but I also think, you know, it's it is arbitrary to say the fact that they are growing is a sign that they're unfaithful. I mean, maybe. <laughs> but also, it seems like we ought to at least consider the alternative, right? And I think we're just so afraid as a denomination, as individual congregations, we're so afraid to ask the question, why aren't we growing that we come up with all kinds of complicated theological rationale to justify where we are instead of really honestly asking the question, you know, maybe we're not growing because we are not being faithful. It's not the world that's not being faithful. It's not the church down the street that's not being faithful. It, it, it's us. Well, it's me, it was Lord. painful for a lot of churches in our presbytery a few years ago when we went through that transformation pilot project and we had the consultant say to us, well, the reason you're not growing is because you're focused on you. You're focused on your mm -hmm. preferences. You're focused internally instead of on the Great Commission. You, you, right. you are not being faithful to the Great Commission. Well, and the deeper, I mean, what they said to us on the very first day, which I'll never forget because... Again, I can't it believe you're my friend it, after all, like we met in this process and I was just like seething with anger and pride and, you know, for the first year and a half that we knew each other. But what they said to us on the very first day is your churches are dying because you've been unfaithful. You need to repent. And I was like, let me tell you what you need to do, <laughs> Bob, <laughs> like, because I just couldn't, couldn't hear it um, because, you know, <laughs> because... That's such a tool because my own experience of myself was I was so faithful. <laughs> my own experience of myself was I was just the most faithful person I knew. And so to have this person who didn't know me to come in and say that I was being unfaithful, I was just like, nobody's allowed to talk to me like that. And we had to learn the difference between faithfulness and working hard. 
Sure. A lot of us were working hard, but not being faithful in the right. right work. And we had to learn the difference between being faithful and being loved. Yeah. Or being faithful and being worthy. Mm-hmm. Like, no one was saying you're not worthy, and no one is saying you're not loved. They're saying, like, you are not doing the thing that God is calling you to do, and they were not wrong. And I and I am not pretending that, like, that was then and this is now and now. I mean, like, I am still struggling to be faithful as a pastor in this congregation and to be faithful, which requires really looking at the things that are not going well and having self-compassion, but not just making excuses and really being able to figure out what, what am I not, what am I not doing that I need to be doing? And what am I doing that I don't need to be doing? You know, just to really continue to to not feel like, oh, I'm an expert now and I've got it. I'm not an expert. I don't got it. Um, and again, I think that's another thing that happens. I, I mean, I really internalize this, that sometimes I just feel like such an idiot that I'm 45 years old and I'm still learning so much. And there's a part of me that is just ashamed of that. Like, I just feel like, oh gosh, like, why didn't I know this I 20 know years this. ago? Like, why, like, how can I be 20 years into ministry and still not understanding really basic, basic. foundational? Like, it's, it's embarrassing. And then I feel like one day I realized, and again, in a way that I think wasn't me, but the Holy Spirit, like, okay, but what's the alternative, Kate? Would you like to be 45 years old and think that you know everything, right? I mean, like, but why have I internalized, again, from this meritocracy culture that's in the world, but I think is in our church, that I should be at a stage where I know everything? Like, for for reals? Like, really? But I really so sincerely have that it's hard to be transparent and vulnerable about, like, "Mm, I'm not sure I know how to make a disciple. Like, I'm not sure that I know how to lead my church in making disciples. I don't know how to equip people to be disciplers. I don't know how to really welcome people. I mean, there's just so many things that it's embarrassing to admit that I don't know how to do. And yet, I mean, I don't. So, (laughs) like, anyway. um, Well, I just think at the end of the day, now that you're preaching at the General Assembly level, When we're out here in these ecclesiastical streets, people need to put some respect on your name. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) You are a very good friend. And I was telling Yolanda about this because I was excited about it. And I was like, do you want to, like, can I ask him, can we, like, do a dialogue sermon? And he was like, absolutely not. Which, of course, is why I asked the question, right? (laughs) No, but... So what's astonishing you? Um, well, we, we actually are recording at my church today. And so we took a walk in our neighborhood, which is um, really beautiful. And um, I was showing you, so our church is um, in an urban corridor in Charlotte that's gone through a lot of change. Um, and, and I would say, I mean, it's been in, in a lot of, in a longstanding decades of decay. I think that's a fair in terms of, resourcing and um um but the but behind our church is all this green space and so if you look out the back of our church it just looks like we're in the middle of the country so it's a really interesting front of the church you're just in the asphalt jungle like not the pretty tall like sky we rise building trying to talk and we had to scream because the traffic was so loud right i mean so but then you turn back into a neighborhood and we had to turn around because there were geese walking in front of me like it's just kind of a strange um, space dichotomy. And so we have all, we do have all this green space around the church that we, um, share with our neighbors, which is great. Um, and we have this labyrinth and I was showing you like the other day I needed to have a really hard conversation with somebody. And so I was sitting out on this picnic table behind the church, having this very, very hard conversation. And, um, and I was talking to this person and all of a sudden, she told me to turn around and I turned around and I was just looking and there's these trees and I don't know what it is. It's like little pieces of like fluff. It looks, little... like, um, it looks like when someone blows, blows a, dandelion, a dandelion, right? Yeah. It's just like, I couldn't see it because my back was in the wrong direction, but like blowing across this field, we're just like this, this. So people need to imagine green grass, green trees, 
and then almost a kind of golden sunlight shining through the trees. You can see the rays. And then these white little puffy... Dandelion things, like almost yeah. like snow, just like floating. I mean, it was just really beautiful. And it's very, it was I'm very not a nature person. It was very, <laughs> like, I don't like, I mean, I like a book. I like a cup of coffee. I like a climate controlled room, although I don't like AC. But I mean, I just, I'm not a nature girl. Like people are like, I find God in nature. I'm like, good for you. I find God in the library. But um, I just was really astonished in that moment at how beautiful it was. And like, not to be too cliched metaphorical about it, but like I was having this really hard conversation with someone that was really painful and overwhelming um, thinking about sort of naming a problem that none of us had the gifting or skill or ability to solve, right? And sort of getting really bogged down in that. And then my friend telling me to turn around and seeing this totally beautiful ephemeral phenomenon happening and I was just facing in the wrong direction and it just felt I mean I really was astonished in that moment and I really did I mean not to be too woo-woo about it but I mean it really was just the sign of like sometimes a lot of the times we're just so burdened by how hard this is when you when you when you are trying to be honest about what what is supposed to happen in a spiritual community and then you're trying to manufacture it and you can't because you're not God, but you're also feel like you're supposed to do something like look busy at least, you know, and then just to kind of turn around and see like, here's this totally beautiful thing happening almost without my awareness and certainly without my effort at all. And I've struck this just for 12 years. So I've never seen that before. I don't know what is happening in this season that wasn't before. And it was just this astonishing reminder of this is all happening because of the real presence of the Holy Spirit, who God is really doing a work of redemption and, and manifesting the kingdom around us and even through us, but not by our strength or by our power. And, and so that's not an that's not a reason to sit under a lemon tree and wait for it to rain lemonade, but also just to think like there are some things that have to be that you can't do. And wisdom is just in accepting that and saying like, okay, Lord, I cannot help this brother transform spiritually. This is a train wreck. And yet I'm not God. So why should I expect that? You know, just this moment of, of perceiving a sign of the presence of the Holy Spirit and being really, really comforted in that and being able to sit in the midst of the powerlessness and the unknowing. I was reading something recently that they were saying that the real moment of spiritual transformation begins when you surrender fully to the unknown. And I think that, you know, this circles back so neatly to our earlier conversation of like, that's what we have to do as pastors, as church members, as I mean, as followers of Jesus Christ, that's who we are, not church members. And as a denomination that like we have to surrender to the unknown and stop trying so hard, you said earlier, to manage decay or even turn it around, whatever, like, no, what is innocent of us, what God's plans are often do not align with our non transformed understanding our minds that are not fully renewed in Christ and we just have to have to be comfortable being uncomfortable and and find peace in our powerlessness and in our not being in control and it was a really good moment for me the situation is still unresolved nothing has changed nothing has been fixed um but it was just a good reminder to be like you know that that's okay. Um, so yeah, that really names my experience of being a pastor. Incredible responsibility next to my incredible weakness, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is a often painful reality to just sit in. Uh, I remember. Well, I feel like I need to. Um, call the first church I pastored out of seminary to apologize to them because I thought I knew everything. And because I was 26, I had a lot of energy and I thought I could be and do everything. And now that uh, I'm weeks away from 50, um, I, I have much more appreciation for 
my weakness and much mm-hmm. more appreciation for the necessity of relying upon the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and I think like people talk about this a lot and I'm not sure what it means, but I think this is what we're circling around that, that good leaders lead from their weakness and not from their strength. And I mean, I think that's what it, that's what it means that when we lead from our strength, that's when we're trying to control and manufacture and produce and people can either get on board with us or get out of the way. And we encourage that then we're modeling it. So then the people who are paying attention to us will model it too in all areas of our lives. But we know that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And so leading from our weakness is about being vulnerable and saying, gosh, we have a problem. We're not really intentionally discipling anybody. This is kind of embarrassing. I could sweep it under the rug and hide it and start another program and, you know, get everybody really busy, busy, right? Or I can lead from my weakness and say, hey, can we name this, right? Or, you know, another example would be if, you know, if we're serving in a congregation that is segregated to say, hey, we have a problem. Like we say, we hold these values. We know that this is what the kingdom of God looks like. We know this is what the God's desire for the church is. And yet it's not what we're experiencing and, and the temptation is just to bury it, to hide it, to say like, oh, well, sociologists say this is the way it is, or someday in heaven it'll be like that, but not like this. But to lead from weakness is to say like, no, no, this is a this is a real thing, and it is not cute, and it's a real weakness. And instead of encouraging people that it doesn't mean what we think it means, let's bring it out into the center, even when that makes us feel uncomfortable and bad about ourselves, and then... And then let's unpack all of that. Like, why does being successful make us feel good about ourselves? And what kind of idol lies within that? And and I think... Well, like, And the scripture is true. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Mm-hmm. But that's not how the world operates. The world operates in like, you know, the pretty powerful people are the people who God has blessed, right? Mm-hmm. And that's just, um, you know, that is very much pagan idolatry, right? Like... The strong, those who are strong and those who are vicious are those who have the God's power. And that is just the, you know, Jesus came to give a counter narrative to that. And we have to really lean in, lean into that. So anyway, where have we gotten? We've just gotten to astonishment. We're not, this was going to be another quick one. Uh Oh, um, what are you thinking about? Well, quickly, um, this has been on my mind since our walk last week. Uh, you'll remember we were going through our um, normal office park walk, mm-hmm. and uh, we were oh, yeah. t- toward the end. And suddenly, a woman pulls over. She gets out of the car, and she runs to the middle of the road. I thought she was having some kind of emergency, but really, she stopped to see if um, she'd hit this turtle that was in the middle of the street. And then... Right, and she, <laughs> she got, hadn't, and she hadn't, and right when she got into her car, a police officer pulled up in his car and stopped in front or right behind the turtle and turned on his emergency lights, um, you know, just to signal the rest of traffic, and allowed this turtle to cross the road safely. Now, I like turtles. Mm-hmm. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm probably going to regret this, but um, oh, this is going to be so good. In high school, my nickname was Turtle. Oh, okay, that's another story. Thank you. So, <laughs> thank you. And you're welcome. Um, oh. And so I, I like turtles. I and I'm, you know, I'm, I, I think. <laughs> why did I share that? Uh, I don't know. I really it, don't know because I have so many possibilities now. Um, okay. Yeah, you, you have my, okay. my, my my little sister's energy. I was like, why did I share that? I'm going to get hit over the head with that later. What? Why? Um, why was your nickname in high school okay, Turtle? Okay, let's, let's we'll come back. I'm sorry. Okay, because, I know okay, you're about so to make a really serious I will, and profound I will point, show so. you, and it was a particular turtle. It was a cartoon turtle. And when someone showed me the picture, I was like, oh, I see. Which cartoon turtle? Like the one who puts his head down in this? There's only one no. cartoon turtle that I can think of. No, okay. Well, like not a teenage mutant ninja no, turtle. No, no, no. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> it was a turtle that was actually 
Okay, never mind. So, so this police officer stops to allow this turtle. Why did I even open that door? I don't know why you did because I, you really have a, an amazingly profound okay, thing to say. So, and you just let me get to that. Um, this police officer stops, lets the turtle cross, and I, in that moment, thought that was a beautiful act. It was a, a human being having this regard for an animal's life. It was and powerful, yielding to the powerless. Yes, and this officer didn't have to do that, sure. right? And then soon after that, what rose up in me was anger because this officer has this incredible regard for a turtle. And the whole point of Kaepernick taking a knee of Black Lives Matter is to say to law enforcement, can you have a similar regard for black people? Can you treat black people humanely? Do you have to take a teenage um, uh, black girl and slam her on the ground? Do, can you have um, a basic human regard for black people? And it, it doesn't seem like too much to ask. And so I, I, in a moment, I just saw that officer having regard for a turtle, and in a flash, all of the police shootings that have happened in this season. And I was disappointed, saddened, and angry. And I, I want to communicate that to white people. White people, if you're listening, that is what we're getting at. That, that's what's bothering us. Like, you'll stop for a turtle, but you will immediately shoot a black person. Yeah, and I think that what is, I mean, just because what you said at the moment is I wish I had a camera because mm -hmm. I would like to take a picture of this and, I mean, in the caption it like, whose lives matter, right? Or, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I think what sometimes people, what I hear people not understanding is people are saying, like, saying reasonably, hey, Officers do a really dangerous job, and sometimes in a situation where things are unclear, an officer might shoot an unarmed person, and that officer shouldn't be charged with murder, right? And so and what I think that a lot of white people don't understand is most black activists I know, not all, but most black activists I know agree with that statement. Right. They're saying like, hey, if you are an officer and you're going into a situation where, say, I don't know, like you're going into a place where there's a drug cartel meeting. Right. The idea that someone in that space um, who is involved in a criminal, you know, known to be involved in a highly dangerous criminal operation might end up being shot by the police there are very few people that I know in the activist community, they might mourn that death, but not blame the officer. Sure. But what what I think people don't want to see is, is I mean, what's not nuance at all, but is the difference of saying, like, if we can agree that that is sometimes necessary, can we also agree that a 14-year-old black girl in a bikini at a community pool, you know she doesn't have a gun you know you don't have to slam her on the ground. So that is a culture thing. It is a culture of you know, people who are powerful and know that they can do whatever they want. And people who want to, I think, understandably advocate for officers having the right to use deadly force to protect themselves and the public would be better served if they were the loudest to cry out against people who are clearly sure. mm -hmm. using excessive and deadly force against people who are no threat to anybody, right? So there's just no reason you think about, I think Elijah McCrane, I think was his name, was the young autistic boy who was walking home at night, who was like five foot two and weighed a hundred pounds and 
you know, was not wearing any clothing that could have concealed a weapon. There was just no reason that he needed to be surrounded by officers and slammed to the ground and held on the ground. That's not an that's not a situation wherein an officer reasonably feared for his life. You can't justify that. But by saying any time, which is often what people who want to protect an officer's right to use deadly force sometimes then say, okay, I need to, I need to uh, uh, um, support it all the time. And this is the problem. And I, I mean, it just makes me um, sad that people can't understand the reality of that contrast for anyone who lives in a black body or a brown body and knows that anytime I get pulled over by the police, the police can do everything, anything they want to. Like the case just a couple weeks ago where the army officer was pulled over and he said, I'm scared to get out of the car. And the officer on camera said, you should be, right? I mean, like that's the dynamic of the culture that has to change. And it and it's astonishing to me that we just can't all agree that there's no reason an officer needs to say to a citizen, you should be afraid of me except that that particular officer in that moment is saying, I have the right to use excessive force against you and I'll use it if I want to. And you're totally in my power. And you know what I would like to believe, and we talked about that on the walk, like I would very much like to believe that an officer who will yield for a turtle would be an officer who would have respect for all life and all human life. And we just don't, we don't know. And we know that there are some people um, who who pri- prioritize animal life over certain human life. And that's mm-hmm. a real thing. Um, I, I mean, like the Michael Vick case is such an excellent e- example of that. So, And I was reading an article the other day that um, I think this was a former incarcerated person who is now... Um, whatever, is now free, like has finished his sentence and is an advocate for prison reform. And I think he was being interviewed on The Daily Show. And he said, you know, we're all so outraged at what we see happening in public, like in public spaces, what kinds of force and just desecrating power against humanity we see. He said, what do you think happens behind prison walls? Wow. And it was an astonishing remark. Like, like that's what's happening in public. What do you think is happening behind prison walls where there's no cameras, there's no access, and the people who are in the power of others are either charged or convicted? What do you think is happening when that dynamic is the same culture exists, but there's there's even less transparency and even less accountability. And that's terrifying. And I think like for me, it's not the issue of like white people are inherently more cruel than black people. I think human beings do not do well with absolute power. So if you swapped it tomorrow and it was white people who had a history of, of being oppressed and black people who had a history of oppressing, I, I mean, it just as easily could have worked out that way. And it's not melanin. That is the issue. It is, if you have absolute power and if you have this ideology, I mean, and this is what Paul is saying, like my enemy is not flesh and blood. My enemy are these powers and principalities which are destroying us, destroying the image of God in us, not just the image of God in the people whose bodies are being killed, but the image of God in the people whose bodies are doing the killing. Like we're fighting for um, the lives of people of color and we're fighting for the souls of white people. Um, and I think that's just such a sobering, I mean, the whole thing was sobering to me because I, obviously we were together. So I saw the officer and I was like, I mean, whatever, I don't really, I don't have a strong opinion one way or another. I would not, I would, I would go out of my way not to run over a turtle, but that's probably the end of it. Um, but I didn't connect it. And the connection is so strong and it makes total sense to me that you would with, you know, where is this kind of deference to George Floyd? Where was yeah. this kind of deference to Walter Scott? Where is this kind of deference in, you know, that's just heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking that we can see 
we can see the sacredness of life in a turtle and not the sacredness of life in a body with brown or black skin. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you thinking about? Um, well, <laughs> so there is right now a huge debate going on in our county, um, which, which is really about um, equity. The Mecklenburg County where we live, or well, you don't live in Mecklenburg County, Mecklenburg County where we serve and where I live um, is ranked, I think, 99th out of 100 for uh, upward mobility in the country. Um, and somebody did a study a couple years ago that's often cited around here in Charlotte that I think we're 50th out of 50 for like a, whatever zip code you're born into in this city really almost entirely determines your destiny. So people who are born in marginalized and impoverished um, communities have very, very little chance to um, move out of poverty statistically in the past. And, and people think, and I certainly think, that that has a lot to do with the ways that our institutions, which we all pay into, are inequitably, our resources are inequitably distributed across the county so that more affluent neighborhoods people living in them have, you know, everything from better schools to better streets and lighting and sidewalks and no parks, desert. no food. I mean, like just in all, all the ways, better health care, all, all the all the ways. And so community leaders are saying, and, and Charlotte did not used to be this way. Like there was a time in, in the 60s, 70s and 80s where Charlotte really was a poster child for the whole country about how... Um, people of different ethnicities could live together in mutually thriving spaces. And then in the 80s, in the 80s, I think, well, in the 80s and then again in the, the 2000s, there were a series of court cases that undid, um, for one thing, busing in schools. So our, our schools in Charlotte have completely resegregated. Our schools in Charlotte are more segregated now than they were in the 60s. Mm -hmm. um, and ironically, we've moved to neighborhood schools, but the neighborhoods are drawn in such gerrymandered ways that CMS actually does more busing now than they did when they did busing. So we are busing kids to keep them in homogenous communities. So rich white kids go to rich white kids' schools. Kids, um, you know, middle class kids go to school full of middle class kids and poor kids go to school with only other poor kids. And that breaks down a lot along racial lines. And so um, the city, the school board and the city, I mean, I would say really the school board has been trying to address these things with various levels of success. I've lived in the city since 2004. We've had four different school superintendents um, that the three previous superintendents were were white men, um, and the last two left, like literally in the middle of the night. Nobody knows why they left. They're gone. These were the last three were were called by big national searches, and they brought in people with you know PhDs and lots of credentials in the educational community, and they did not new, move the needle in any meaningful way. Um, and again, the last two left, I mean, something happened because they left in the middle of the week. Nobody will say why it just, something happened, something bad, but we don't know. So the current superintendent that we have is a man named Ernest Winston. He is a former journalist. He's a black man. He started out as a teacher. He has worked his way up through the system. He is the superintendent now. He's been a superintendent for two years. 18 months of that has been during a global pandemic, right? Um, in under his leadership, CMS has you know created this equity committee commission that they're working with key leaders in the communities to figure out how do we close these equity gaps because they're huge in terms of the rates of white kids who graduate from high school versus black kids in terms of which schools have which kinds of classes. It's I mean it's just bad. It's bad, 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 bad. But it exists in the context of a county where. Um, County services are terribly inequity distrib inequitably distributed. So it's not just the schools; it's the whole. It's the healthcare system. It's the housing system. It's the transportation system. All of it. Well, the county commissioners this year, working with the Black Ministerial Alliance, have, um, and with the support of the president of the NAACP, ha have really said we, as a county, want to hold our school system accountable 
for these inequities. And so starting next year, we are going to defund the school system by $56 million because they don't have a plan to close these inequities. And that's unacceptable. Now, the challenge for me is that CMS does have a plan. And then the county says, well, yes, you have a plan, but it's it's DOA, like you're not going to hit your first goals in 2024, to which I want to say, yeah, there's been a global pandemic. <laughs> and also, schools have kids, CMS has kids from eight to three. You know, you we have a homelessness, many of homeless, the whole, all of the homeless kids in the city go to CMS because they're not at charter schools. They're not at private mm-hmm. schools, right? They're not at these places where you want vouchers and, the, you know, so, so, um, the, the county is saying, and, and I'm, I'm not mad at this is saying we have to address iniquities in our community. And I agree, but the only conversation they want to have is to say that the reason we have iniquities is because CMS is failing vulnerable kids And we've been just giving them money without holding them accountable. So we're going to hold them accountable starting now. And I think that that is crap. And they're saying all kinds of things. They're saying, like, we're not withholding the money. You just have to have a plan. But they have a plan. But that plan doesn't count. And then they're saying we're withholding the money. But it's not going to affect kids because it's just going to affect administrators. And I'm like, I don't know how you think that withholding money from the public school system is not going to affect public school students. And then they're saying... Especially the most vulnerable. But right, because the schools that have more affluence are just going to fundraise the money through their PTAs to make up the gap. So the kids who are going to be most hurt by this are the very kids that are that you say that you're advocating for. And I just fundamentally, I just do not believe that we can achieve equity by saving money. Like, I just don't... I just am deeply suspicious of having to of how that's going to happen. And I am mad that all of a sudden, Ernest Winston, in the middle of a pandemic, the first black man who's come up through the system is being held completely responsible for not solving iniquities that have been happening for, you know, whatever, decades in this school system and under the and people are saying, like, he's not qualified. He's not qualified. I'm like, well, you had a lot of qualified people and they didn't do anything. And this guy hasn't even had a chance yet. And most of the teachers I know like him because he was a teacher and he's come up through the system. But I'm not saying I don't want to hold CMS accountable. I really do. I just find it rich that, you know, where else there's huge iniquities is in our um, law enforcement and nobody's talking about defunding CMPD or defunding mm. the jails, right? Like, so I just think it's such an easy scapegoat to to use it in this way. Anyway, the only reason I'm bringing this up is backstory because there was a, a a hearing, a public hearing for the county commissioners, and I, you know, I have three kids. Next year, all three of them will be in CMS, and so I spoke that in opposition to this part of the budget, the part of the budget that was holds money from CMS. Um, and I spoke as Kate Murphy, parent of three CMS kids. <laughs> and so like right before we got started, I got an email, I mean, my church email address, which is the only one I use from a local news station saying, hey, we're doing a story. Um, and we we heard you speak, like, do you want to speak again in the story? And I was just saying like, I, A, there's the strange, I mean, not strange, there's an interesting dynamic that some of the loudest supporters of the county and this budget are prominent black leaders, spiritual leaders in our community. And I certainly, I mean, again, like the black community is not a monolithic voice and I was, they might be right and I might be wrong. Right. I just don't see it that way. But what I don't want to be is like, here are the black pastors on one side and the white pastor on the other, which is not representative. I mean, there are black people and white people on both sides of this issue, but also I'm happy as Kate Murphy, resident of the county, mother of three CMS kids, to say this is what I think. Um, But I'm not comfortable doing it as Kate Murphy, who is the pastor of the Grove, because even though I think that, I mean, close to 100% of the people in the Grove would happen to agree with this position, I am not, you know, I'm not representing the church. I'm just a I'm a mom. I'm a member of this community. And so we were just talking about that interesting intersection of how do you, um, 
you know, balance these identities of I am a pastor, but that's not my whole identity. And I, um, you know, I, I have to be able to, sorry, we, we might need to pause this for one minute. I'm so sorry. So anyway, the bottom line is I, you know, I'm thinking about, um, this request to be interviewed. And I think my line back is I'm happy to talk as Kate Murphy, part of this community who has three daughters in CMS. Um, but not, you know, but it's not appropriate to put my title or my church affiliation there, here, there, because I'm not doing this, you know, as representative of this community. But I don't think they're going to separate the two. Well, they, I, I don't know. I, I think, I think you should, and 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 I, if I were you, I would as well say, "Hey, I want to make this distinction," but they will probably still include that. But for me, it would be enough if they said, "Hey, this is someone in the community who happens to be a pastor." Right. Right. I mean, and there's sometimes I think it's interesting. Sometimes we're doing certain things, and I mean, I do use my pastoral identity. Like, I mean, I think there are times in this past year when when we were part of um, different protests and rallies for, um, for for justice, you know, that then I want to show up as a pastor and say, hey, this is, I, I'm, I'm standing here as a representative of the church. But as clear as this issue is to me, everyone on both sides, if we take them at their word, everybody on both sides wants the same thing, which is to close these equity gaps. And so it, it's important to say that is a holy, a holy goal. Like there's no, there's no counterpoint in the body of Christ to wanting all children to flourish and grow into the people that God created them to be in our community. So in, in a, um, in a Christian community, people can have really different and even opposing, um, methods for achieving this same end, which is shalom. And so I don't want to to give the impression that as clear as I feel about this, it's not that Jesus is on this side and the people who opposed are, are standing against Jesus. That's not that's not the case. Well, and I know, you know, we haven't been about debating or advocating for critical race theory, but one of the things that it highlights is that these kinds of issues are interconnected and they are complicated. Yeah. So when you talk about inequity in schools, it's more than just dollars. Do dollars mm -hmm. matter? Yes. But there are a whole lot of systems that come into play and we've got to address the whole thing. And and I feel like it's 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 similar to what we face in the church sometimes. We want to um, we want to address symptoms and symptoms matter. But if you only address symptoms, then, then you can really miss the good that you really intend to do. Well, and I think it is, I mean, I think part of my problem is it's just trying to, it's, it's putting forward a simple solution to a very complicated problem. So sort of the, the underlying mm -hmm. is like, well, we have iniquities because CMS leaders are bad and they don't care about kids. And so we are going to make them care by threatening to take away their money. And I just, I don't think that's true. I don't think that anyone is involved in public education today like to get rich or to earn the respect and of their all you community do is pull back a little bit and see we have a housing crisis in this right. uh, I mean, city and county right. right i don't know how cms is supposed to make equity happen in the educational system when kids are still experiencing the damage of inequities in the housing system in the predatory policing system in the um, healthcare system i mean mm -hmm. these are all things that show up and really um, prevent kids from being able to thrive, even when they are in a safe space surrounded by caring adults. And again, I mean, whatever. The point of this wasn't even to talk about the specific situation, just to give enough context to say, it's interesting as a pastor in a community where you live here. And so there are some things that you are just, that it needs to be in line with the values of the kingdom. But, you know, I'm not I, my voice doesn't have more weight mm -hmm. because I'm a pastor. It just doesn't. As a part of this community, my voice does not have more weight because I'm a pastor, and it shouldn't. And so I and don't. There want are times when, gosh, this is going to sound odd, but there are times when you almost don't want people to know that you're a pastor. You you want to be a citizen, and you want to speak as a follower of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so that's what I'm thinking about. 
Um, what are you preaching about? What am I preaching about? I'm not really sure <laughs> this week. It's just Tuesday morning, um, but I think I'm leaning toward uh, Nehemiah 4, Nehemiah chapter 4, where they are um, doing the work of rebuilding, and they get discouraged because there's opposition and there's lots of work, and you know people are doing just what's in front of their house, and um, there's a there's a bigger picture uh, that needs to be seen, and um, so I think I'm going to um, look at that passage just as we prepare to go back into our building. There, lots of those issues are coming up for us. There are some uh, beloved brothers and sisters in our church family who uh, see the return to the building as simply a return to pre-pandemic church. Yeah. And um, I'm not sure if they see the rubble, if they see that uh, we really have entered into a new day and that that what's being required of us in this season is hard. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we've just got to get our minds ready. And I, I said this to our, our session, our board of elders at our last meeting, is that we need to be prepared to fight right? in the in the Nehemiah text? I think they were they were building bricks with one hand and a sword in the other, or mm-hmm. something like that. And I wanted to remind them that the the fight is not against one another. There is no one in our community who is the enemy. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but there is a there's a certain kind of fight that we need to have in order to go forward together. And um, you know, my concern as a pastor is that we, we may not be prepared for that because we've had this heart hunger just to get together, you know, after right. a year of pandemic. And so we almost see getting back together in the building as the finish line when really it's just the start of right. this new thing that is big and hard and challenging when we've got to think through now as a church of less than a hundred people, now less than 75 people who need to, um, you know, whatever we do in person, we've got to find some online offerings yeah. uh, for that. And, we are just painfully weak here. Well, and I think one of the things that's helpful for me about that 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 series, that part of the book of Nehemiah is I think sometimes in the church we think like, okay, well, let's just talk about it and talk about it and talk about it until we're all on the same page. It's almost like there's a like an informal filibuster mm-hmm. where if you don't get that's like good. a super hyper majority, you can't go forward. And the reality is, you know, Nehemiah I think was great in saying like, and this is a dangerous precedent to set. So I'm I'm aware of that. But he knew the work. He knew that the work was to rebuild. And so, you know, there's times when people in opposition were coming to him and trying to get him to come down and talk. And he was saying, I'm not coming down. I have a great work to do. I'm not coming down from this wall. I'm going to do this work. And I think sometimes it's important just to say, everyone is welcome here. Everyone is welcome here. But no one is welcome to change the mission. Mm. And if you don't want to be a part of it, you can still be welcome here and not be a part of it. But you're not welcome to stop it. Like we know the work of this season and we're undeterred in doing it. And I think that is important too. I think people feel like, well, you you should stop until I get on board. And if you don't stop until I get on board, then you're being unloving to me. Not true. Yeah. I know the work that I'm called to do in this season. I am going to do it. You are valuable. You are worthy. You are loved. You belong and this is the work we have to do. You don't have to join us to belong, but we don't have to stop to love you. And so that I, I think is really important in this season that some people are, some people just, people have different stages of adapting to the work, right? And that's okay. And people have different seasons of belonging in the community and that's okay too. And it's not unloving to say we have to be about our father's business. And so that's what we're doing. I love it. I love it. I love it. And you are preaching. So we are celebrating Pentecost this week at the Grove. I understand that most people celebrated Pentecost two weeks ago. Um, And I just want to point out that that is an arbitrary construct of a date that was chosen by 15 men sitting around a table, however many years ago. And we need to celebrate Pentecost and Pentecost is important, but I think there are times in the life of the church where we can just shift things. So as we are for the first time uh, inviting some folks will come back and worship in the building this Sunday, um, it's important to me that this Sunday is a celebration. I mean, just to your earlier point, not 
it's not a celebration of us returning to the building. What we celebrate and look long for is the gift of the Holy Spirit as, as our real identity as people who are spirit filled. And that just exactly what you're saying, like this is not a finish line. Um, this isn't even a starting line. It's a, it is a thing that has happened in the life of the community of spirit filled people who were still filled and called and on mission and a church, even while we were apart. And so just putting this whole thing in the context of the eternal um, reality of what God has done in Jesus um, and and how the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has um, prepared and, and, and enabled us to be filled with the advocate, with the Holy Spirit, that, that that's really important. And that's what I want to celebrate on this day. And so that's why we made that that shift. And so we're celebrating Pentecost on Sunday. And um, just the idea that all, um, I mean, we were saying on the walk that what is amazing about Pentecost is not that people were filled by the Holy Spirit, because throughout the record of scripture, people get filled by the Holy Spirit. Individuals do, um, priests and kings and prophets. Um, but what is remarkable that happens on Pentecost is all the people in the room were filled by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And just this idea that what we believe that's amazing is not just a select few for a particular period of time, but that our new reality is indwelling with God, that that Jesus came down incarnational and lived and walked among us, and then Jesus went away so that each one of us could be filled with that same presence. And so living into that, um, and as you said on the walk, the question isn't, do we have the Holy Spirit? The question is, how much of us does the Spirit, Holy Spirit have? And so thinking about, okay, if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, where am I surrendering to that? Um, and where am I holding back from that? Mm. And what have I relinquished? And what am I still um, holding back? So that's what we're going to do. It's going to be a great sermon. Pentecost. I mean, we'll see. Great Sunday. It is a great Sunday. It is a great Sunday. I really need all of our live stream equipment to work this week. Please. Please. <laughs> Holy Spirit. Anyway, thank you all for listening to us this week. Um, it gives us a lot of joy to make this podcast. So um, we really are astonished and prayerful that the Lord would use it to bless um, other people. It's just an example of the foolishness of the Holy Spirit. You know that time in scripture where God made a donkey talk? It's kind of like that, right? <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening. If you want to find out more about what God in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit is doing at Derida Presbyterian Church, D-E-R-I-T-A Presbyterian, DeridaPres.org. That's our website. DeridaPres.org. DeridaPres.org. And if you would like to worship with Derida Prez, you can go to their YouTube channel on Sunday mornings. And if you would like to listen to Yolando's back catalog of messages, which I highly recommend, you can go to their Podbean website and look for the Derida Church podcast. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at uh, the Grove, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You should know this. <laughs> the grovecharlotte.org. Um, and you can worship with us uh, in person. In person! This Sunday, wear a mask. Don't come if you don't want to wear a mask. If you don't want to wear a mask, that's fine. We invested thousands of dollars in live streaming equipment so that you can have the experience of sitting on the front pew, which no one would do if they were in the building. So, um, But if you're willing to put up with wearing a mask over your nose and your mouth, then please come and worship with us on Sunday um, in the sanctuary. It's going to be beautiful. And if you don't want to, catch us on the live stream at 10 a.m., um, which would be great. And if you want to hear old messages from the Grove, timeless messages. Timeless. Wow. Um, you can check out our podcast, which is on iTunes at the Grove Church Podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.